you find this on page 939 of the ESV. We'll be picking up uh, in chapter one um, uh, and continuing the study that we started last week in the book of Romans. Uh, before we read God's word, let me uh, open our time together in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do praise you for um, who you are, for your great uh, attributes and uh, your great being. Uh, we praise you and give glory to you even more for uh, how you have wondrously revealed yourself uh, to us, that uh, you did not uh, leave us in sin and darkness, but you sent forth uh, your glorious light. You sent forth uh, your very self in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, who took on flesh, uh, born of the woman, and died on a cross, that our mortal bodies might be raised with him and ascend with him into your heavenly kingdom. Lord, we thank you for uh, how you speak to us. And we know that your word uh, doesn't just uh, convey uh, thoughts or a philosophy, but even as we'll see uh, this morning, your uh, word is itself uh, powerful, even as you spoke and the world came into being. So we uh, pray that your powerful word would do a work in us this morning. Um, may it uh, work faith in us, may it work conviction of sin in us and repentance, and make it uh, help us to grow in grace and confidence and boldness uh, in the good news that you've sent us to proclaim. Lord, we pray for your spirit, that it would be with us this morning, that it would guide us into all truth, and that we would be um, not just built up in mind, but our wills would be equipped to love and serve you all the days of our life. Uh, speak to us now, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week um, we uh, looked at the letter of Romans, uh, the introduction, and we talked about how Paul, uh, writing to a church that he um, didn't plant and indeed had never even visited yet, um, spent a longer amount of time introducing himself. And in doing so, he didn't establish his credentials on the basis of his own personal attributes, but he um, based his credibility before the Romans on his um, empowerment by the gospel, that he is a slave, an apostle, um, one who's been set apart for this gospel of God. And it's that gospel message that unites him with the Roman church. Uh, and has caused this great longing for him to be with them and to visit him. Um, so last week we covered one through, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1. Um, today uh, we're going to do two verses. Never before in my life have I done a Sunday school on two verses, so we're venturing into uncharted waters here. <laughs> um, but hopefully it'll, it'll go well. But these are an important, verses 16 and 17 are really important verses um, for the book of Romans. Um, uh, people talk about verses one, verses 16 and 17 as being the thesis statement 
of the book of Romans or the theme of the book of Romans or he's getting you right in the beginning um, these two verses that are just packed full of important concepts that he's going to spend the next 11 chapters unfolding. So um, verses 16 and 17 in reality are setting forth setting forth the theme, the ideas, the concepts that he's going to be working through the meaning of and implications of these concepts from here until the end of chapter 11. Um, so we're uh, 16 and 17 are transitioning from that introduction we saw last week to the major discourse of the book of Romans. So even though, um, yeah, uh, I'm a little... Uh, a little nervous about trying to cover two verses. This might be the shortest Sunday school in history. Um, or it might go on and I'm not even able to teach two verses. So we'll see how these things go. Um, but first, let me read for us. I'm going to read um, uh, um, the entirety of chapter one so we can kind of see how these two verses kind of plant right in the middle of this chapter and form the focal point from introduction into um, how the chapter ends. Uh, talking about the disclosure of God's wrath against unrighteousness. So hear now the word of God um, from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thus far, the word of our God. May he bless it as we uh, speak of it together this morning. All right, so again, uh, our focus this morning will be on these two verses, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So let's start with this idea of, um, of shame. So why might Paul, or us, or other Christians, or anyone, um, be ashamed of the gospel? And the word for ashamed here can also mean offended. Or, um, so what is offensive to people about the gospel? People noted this is kind of unusual language for Paul to sort of usually, like, he's proud of the gospel. So why is he going to state it in this negative form? Why is he emphasizing he's not ashamed? Yeah, as we, you know, ourselves, but also the people around us, the offense of the gospel is, is as you're saying, is it's saying we're not the autonomous beings that we like to present ourselves 
that we um, are being presented with a message that comes from outside us and tells us that in ourselves, we are powerless without this message. So it, it critiques that, that human self-autonomy. Um, Yeah, Chrysostom. Yeah, Chrysostom um, has a great line that, that says exactly what you're saying, Brian. Um, he said this, the Romans were most anxious about the things of the world because of their riches, their empire, their victories, and they thought that their emperors were equal to the gods. While they were so puffed up, Paul was going to preach Jesus, the carpenter's son, who was brought up in Judea in the house of a lower-class woman, who had no bodyguards, who was not surrounded by wealth, who, but who died as a criminal among thieves and endured many other inglorious afflictions. <laughs> so, yeah, so here he's pre presenting this message of a crucified carpenter's son to the place where there, you know, that epitomizes human grandeur and power and glory and, like, what is this? <laughs> um, what is this message you're bringing? Like, why should we pay any attention to, to this guy? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, so like he's presenting this message of a of you know events decades earlier, a guy who died on a cross, um, and you know, it's, I, I didn't write them down, but it's great to like read um, some of the earliest references to Christians by Romans and sort of like to, to hear, like just to get this little snapshot of how they're like, you know, they're preaching some message about a guy we killed two decades ago. Like, what is this thing? Like, like give us something, you know, new. Um, give us something that um, is, is, compelling and that we can look up to, not something that we despise. Good. Why else? Are there other reasons? Why does he want to, you know, why make this statement? Um, some people have kind of thought, well, maybe he's just making this purposeful, you know, understatement for effect. Um, but I think he's, he's trying to... Um, get across, like, there, there's, there are reasons in terms of the world that, that we might feel this human emotion of shame um, about this gospel message. And, you know, we've seen some of them, like, especially as Brian said, like, in this Roman context, like, you know, and again, like, I, this is one of those verses that I think, you know, has that application of how we feel about the gospel in the places we work and knit, move, and live.
yeah, that there's some shameful, maybe some stories are circulating about some shameful aspects of the gospel. Um, I think that, yeah, um, and, and the opposite of shame in, in these verses, so the, as you, you rightly say, the, we're starting with the four, so we need to go back. And so it's verse 15 is, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed. So in this case, he's contrasting shame or being ashamed of the gospel with this eagerness. So there's not something that, um, that is preventing him from presenting the message other than like circumstances. Um, but he's eager to preach it. And again, I think this is, for, for me at least, this is very convicting because the opposite of shame uh, or, or being ashamed isn't complacency. The opposite is being eager, you know, bold. So, like, rather than, like, cowering in the corner, it's being bold with the message and an eagerness to proclaim it rather than this shameful reticence. Yeah, because it's not just an idea, it's not just a philosophy, it's not just concepts. As he, you know, his reason for not being ashamed is the, the phrase that you just uh, said, for it is the power of God for salvation. Like, it's like, to be ashamed of this is to reject the message um, of Christ. And, and this is uh, in Luke 9, um, seven, here we go. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed 
when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. Um, so there's that, like, to be ashamed is, is, is it's an attitude of unbelief. Um, it's a, you know, it's, we're presenting not a, a message of power, but we're presenting to be ashamed is presenting our own unbelieving hearts. Um, and, and that Paul is, is, is kind of using this um, uh, to prepare his hearers, to prepare the Romans and us to, to be able to bear the reproach of the cross of Christ, that we might not undervalue the gospel when we're exposed to the taunts or fears of taunts of the people around us. Good. Anything else we want to say about being ashamed? We did 30 minutes on one word. Uh, <laughs> maybe we're not going to get through two verses. Yeah, like, I mean, it brings out, and especially, you know, this is where Paul, when we transition to the beginning, he's going to start off with, um, as, as Pastor Kerr just, like, he, you know, there's this contrast or contrast between the, the power of God, the righteousness of God being revealed, and the wrath of God <laughs> revealed against all sin. Like, and he's starting with this, like, not only, you know, is the, you know, the packaging of the message through the carpenter's son, you know, despicable in the eyes of the world. The message itself, that you are so sinful that the son of God had to come and die just so you can have eternal life. Like, that you're so bad. Like, and and people don't think of themselves that, like, we, well, you know, pretty good, hadn't murdered anybody this week, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, you know, let that person cut in front of me, and so, you know, like, we're, people just don't think of themselves in light of this wrath of God that's going to be revealed, it is being revealed, it's not going to be, it is revealed, um, this wrath of God is, is, is being revealed now, and, and that wrath shows that none of us can stand before this just God and, and be, uh, have any hope of meeting his standard save God doing an act for us. Um, that this gospel is gift. It's, it's completely undeserved. Okay, good. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, this, this idea of power. Paul doesn't say the gospel brings power or the gospel has power, but he says the gospel is power. So what is powerful about the gospel message? Or what is the power in the gospel message?
yeah, it's this power that comes. Um, and again, it comes through the gospel, like the gospel itself. I mean, it, I, um, I meant to look it up, but I, I couldn't find the book. <laughs> it's a problem sometimes in my household. Uh, um, but uh, so I, I wanted to get this specific verse, and I can't remember it, so I'm going to butcher the story because I can't remember the specific Bible verse. But um, Charles Spurgeon was uh, once asked to preach in the Crystal Palace, you know, this, this amazing structure of glass and steel built in Victoria, England to kind of display the industrial might of Great Britain at, you know, at this, um, you know, grand exposition. So there's a story, and it, it's like, um, it, it, I don't know how a glass and steel structure burns down, but it burned down, <laughs> um, so it doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it was a massive, like, just an entire, like, massive structure. So he went to, uh, after hours, to, to t try to test the acoustics. And so, so he went in, and he, like, just read this Bible verse, you know, and, you know, just proclaimed it. Little knowing that in some corner of the building was a little janitor, you know, like, sweeping up, <laughs> thinking he was the only person in the building, and all of a sudden, he hears this, you know, this gospel message. It might have been John 3.16. Like, and like, and just that, one verse. <laughs> he doesn't even see the speaker. He just hears this one verse and is saved. Like, just by the, you know, the word of, the, of God carries the power to transform human hearts in and of itself. Like, it, it, I mean, again, it's like, to think about the, the word of God, the gospel message, having this transformative power because it's God's word. It's not mere human words. It's not a human message. It is God's message that does a work when it is spoken. That's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, and again, it's not like, you know, good news that then... Like, you have to do something to act on it. Like, it's good news that, that carries the action in itself. Yeah, that, and we spend all this time of, like, I, I got to get the words right, or I have to be able to answer all objections, or, you know, this and that. We put all that weight on ourselves, whereas Paul's saying, no, look, I can be eager to preach this gospel, because even though it's, it, you know, I'm like, you know, or I'm not, Paul, and Paul says this is himself, I'm not much to look at, I'm not all that powerful of a speaker, but the message itself is the power, and it does the work unto salvation. Yeah, it's, 
faith is that mustard seed. <laughs> Tiny, you know, little, and, you know, uh, this grand thing. Um, yeah, and again, it's that faith that's coming in response to the proclamation. Like, it's, it's, in, it's faith is that response to what God has done. Um, and, and again, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Like, again, it's not just mere human speech. It's not, you know, um, uh, just form of words, but it's the ability to bring something about. Um, the word here is dunamis, um, which we get our, derive our English word dynamic. Um, and it's interesting, the Septuagint never uses this word to describe natural forces, um, never uses it to describe those, the works of those um, uh, you know, all those impersonal gods. But dunamis is used only with respect to the creative, redemptive, and sustaining manifestations of the one truly personal divine being. Like, you know, when, when scripture uses this word, it is God doing something. God bringing something about. God, um, you know, creating things, redeeming things, sustaining things by his power. Um, it's, it's that kind of idea. All right, good. Well, let's, uh, so, I mean, again, big words here. Um, you know, it's the power of God for salvation. Um, so who is the gospel for? Uh, and how does one receive it? So, again, in these, these, brief encapsulation of the gospel that he's going to spend the rest of, or not the rest, but the next uh, 10 chapters unfolding. So who's the gospel for, and how does one receive it? Everyone. Who believes. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's for everyone, and, uh, and as Tim was saying, like, it's, it's offered to all, and, and all that's necessary is, is to respond in faith, to believe. Um, faith is not a quality or attribute that exists independently of the gospel. It's not like a message for those who have faith. It, it's a message that faith only comes as a response to this good news that God has revealed. Um, faith is the openness to the gospel which God himself creates. And it's going to everyone. Um, believing and faith, as Paul proclaims them, are opposed to all human deserving and to all human credit, um, but is proclaimed to everyone. Um, John Murray said this, we must not discount the emphasis that the gospel is unto salvation to everyone that believes. There's no discrimination arising from race or culture. There's no obstacle arising from the degradations of sin. Wherever there is faith, there the omnipotence of God is operative unto salvation. Um, so it's to everyone by faith. Um, Tim Keller described it, faith as like, like, you know, the light switch that, you know, conveys the power of God. <laughs> um, like, so it's faith that's, that's 
doesn't possess the power, but it's by faith we access the power of this omnipotent God. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, who was the guy before Nero? Um, my high school Latin teacher will be ashamed that I don't have this, like, that answer instantly on the tip of my lips. Maybe this is why we didn't win the Latin quiz bowl. Um, but, but yeah, to, and to, to take what you're saying, uh, Brian, and apply it to us, like, now, like, we can look at the culture around us and, and be so, like, Oh, you know, like these forces are insurmountable and like all these things are so imbued with our culture and no one's going to listen to us. And like we, we need to think of ourselves like in this position, like that to look back and see, no, this word is power. It's transformed the world before and it can transform the world again. Um, uh, you know, if we present it as a message of of power um, and are not ashamed of it, but boldly proclaim its truth because God has done a mighty work through things the world considers despicable and foolish and nonsense. Um, and as we'll see next week, it's basically because the world is suppressing the truth, repressing the truth. Um, and it's our call to present that truth to the world. Good. What else do we want to say about, uh, or anything else we want to say about who the gospel for? Um, so it's it's all inclusive, um, except like the dividing line isn't any pre-existing human condition. The dividing line is belief and unbelief.
Yeah, um, I can't, I, sometimes I do this, I forget to write down who I'm quoting, which is why I can never use my notes because they're basically plagiarizing everything. <laughs> um, but uh, somebody said, put like what you're saying, Matthew, this way, and it like, you know, uh, no, no, like, um, uh, but captures all the things that you're saying. Faith is the openness to the gospel which God himself creates. It not only directs the message to the hearer, like, so that gospel proclamation is not just delivering words, but he, he himself, opens the hearer's heart to the message. It is God who has brought about the message of the gospel through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, but it is also God who, by his spirit, brings that message to the consciousness of every individual and lays people's hearts open to respond personally. And it's that picture, again, of um, the power of the gospel to produce this faith in us. And it, um, it goes out to everyone, um, irregardless. I love when that happens. <laughs> Good, and that's a, let's uh, transition because, again, like really important words are being brought forward here that are going to like dominate um, our, our discussions in coming weeks. So let's talk about this. So he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So um, let's start. What is the righteousness of God? How do we understand this phrase? So, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so good. So first of all, the righteousness of God describes a personal attribute of God himself, that he has this righteousness. The word can also be real, you know, translated just or justice, that God in himself is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. So, you know, the gospel is, is this proclamation of the perfect rightness or justice of, of God, that is an attribute that he in and of himself possesses. Is that all that's meant here? That it's just an attribute of God? It is, absolutely. Is that all Paul's, when he says righteousness of God, is that all that he's talking about?
So good. So yeah, so righteousness of God, it's a personal attribute of God, but it also can refer to something that God gives to us, right? You know, that is this, this transaction, as you describe, that when we stand before God, you know, through faith, we're not standing there with all our sins testifying against us. We're standing there clothed in the righteousness of God. And this is important here because this is uh, what Luther described as the stumbling block. If we only read this as the justice of God and God's right standard, and that's it. Like God has a perfect standard of righteousness and holiness, and that's what it takes. That, that leads to despondency and despair. Uh, let me just uh, read what, how Luther described this. So he, he's talking about how um, he, when he was first a professor of the Bible, the first thing he did was teach through the Psalms. And, and then he said, I've been seized with a really extraordinary ardor to understand Paul in the letter to the Romans. But until then, there stood in my way, not coldness of blood, but this one word, Romans 1.17, the justice of God is revealed in it. For I hated this word, the justice of God, which by the use and usage of all the doctors I was taught to understand philosophically in terms of that so-called formal or active justice with which God is just and punishes the sinners and the unrighteous. For however irreproachably I lived as a monk, I felt myself before God to be a sinner with a most unquiet conscience, nor could I be confident that I had pleased him with my satisfaction. I did not love, nay, rather I hated this righteous God who punished sinners. And if not with tacit blasphemy, certainly with huge murmurings, I was angry with God, saying as though it really were not enough that miserable sinners should be eternally damned with original sin and have all kinds of calamities laid upon them by the law of the Ten Commandments. God must go and add sorrow upon sorrow and even through the gospel itself bring his justice and wrath to bear. I raged in this way with a wildly aroused and disturbed conscience, and yet I knocked importunately at Paul in this passage, thirsting more ardently to know what Paul meant. At last, God being merciful, as I thought about it day and night, I noticed the context of the words, namely, the justice of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then and there I began to understand the justice of God as that by which the righteous man lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. In this sentence, the justice of God is revealed in the gospel to be that passive justice with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just lives by faith. This straightaway made me feel as though reborn and as though I had entered through the open gates into paradise itself. From then on, the whole face of Scripture appeared different. So, like, you know, that, that idea that God is perfectly just, and yet he justifies sinners by communicating his righteousness to us. That is the good news of the gospel, and that's in reality, what Paul is going to be working out. How can God be perfectly righteous in himself and yet bring unrighteous sinners like us 
into his presence. And he does this through the power of the gospel working in us. The righteousness of God is the cause of salvation. Here, too, the righteousness of God must not be understood as that righteousness by which he is righteous in himself, but as that righteousness by which we are made righteous by him. And this happens through faith in the gospel. Or Augustine, the righteousness of God is that righteousness which he imparts in order to make men righteous, just as that is the Lord's salvation by which he saves us. So uh, this, this picture of God's righteousness is this that, that we receive by faith. This is the message that Paul is going to be unpacking. And, and this phrase, um, uh, uh, the righteousness of, you know, that comes by faith, a righteousness through faith, is going to be repeated in 3 and 4 and 9 and 11 and 5. Like, you know, this is going to be the, the hammer that Paul uh, uses again and again in this book. Um, and it's this, this great picture of the gospel message, uh, this transaction, as Scott uh, called it, by which unrighteous sinners can, can appear before God perfectly righteous and it's more than just a forgiving of sins but it's it's the applying the righteousness of God to us that we receive by faith yeah David Yeah, we have to understand that gulf that exists between us and God. Because we, like, you know, we're so used to being graded on a curve. Like, the idea of an absolute standard, an absolute righteous, a perfect righteousness. And that's the standard by which we'll be judged. Um, that's the standard um, that, you know, that, that we need to attain to receive salvation. And salvation for, for Paul is always connected to this idea of eternal life, that at the coming of Jesus Christ, you know, we, we enter into this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, and we, we taste it now. It's already come to pass, but it's now and not yet. And so you know, the idea, how can we be saved um, when there's this great gulf that exists between us and God? And Every human effort is going to fall short. Um, I, I like it's like trying to ride a bike across the Grand Canyon, like or jump across it. Like you know, maybe I can run and take a jump, but like uh, you know, I'm a spindly white guy. Like I, I can't jump very far. Like so, splat. Um, somebody else can jump a little farther. Splat. And maybe somebody can ride a bike and go a little splat farther. And, and maybe Evil Knievel can use his rocket cycle and even he couldn't make it across. Like, it's like it doesn't matter how much our human righteousness, like how much better we are than someone else. 
if in the end we're all plummeting to our death. <laughs> like, um, and, and that's what Paul is going to be expounding in the next um, three chapters is this idea that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God and we have to understand that in order to see, well, how do we, how do we cross the canyon by the bridge that God builds to us um, that, and that we receive this gift given to us rather than keep trying, no, no, keep your bridge. I, I think I can make it this time. <laughs> Splat. <laughs> Somebody else uses the idea of swimming across the Pacific. <laughs> like, same idea. Like, you know, uh, Michael Phelps is going to make it farther than I can, but he's not going to make it all the way. <laughs> he, he might, I don't know how long Michael Phelps can swim, or some distance swimmer uh, can make it even farther than Michael Phelps. Um, but, but nobody can bridge the gulf from our side. It requires God's act toward us, God's intervention to, to us. And, and that's why he, you know, because of his righteousness, that's why it requires his sending of his son. Because the gulf is so vast. Our, our sin has created such an infinite debt between us and God that we could never hope to, to repay it. Um, so God has to make this infinite sacrifice and clothe us with a righteousness that um, uh, is alien, foreign to us. It's a gift, this alien righteousness that we receive from the perfectly righteous God. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and it's a good place we, we need to start getting toward the end. And, and this is where he's going to start next week um, with, you know, in the second half of chapter one. Um, and hopefully you heard some of the kind of same language he's going to use and, and parallels, except there it's, it's not God's power to deliver sinners, but God's power to punish sinners in his wrath for their unrighteousness. So like that the world has an, an enormous problem. Every human being has an enormous problem of unrighteousness that deserves the immediate wrath of God. Um, and that wrath, we're already, as Paul says, already experiencing it in this world. It's not just some, oh, you know, in the end, we all will, you know, be punished like no the wrath of God is being revealed it's an ongoing thing so it's a very present problem that we all have and our only hope of deliverance is this God who communicates to us his righteousness it's an amazing message that we get a chance to work out again and again in the coming week um, well, let me uh, close our time in prayer. Oh, Lord God, what good news truly this gospel is. Uh, good news that, that brings the power to save, to deliver us from the wrath and death that we deserve. Um, 
but rather than standing uh, uh, before you on the basis of our works, of our righteousness, or something we've earned, we're able to stand before you clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that he's given to us, that he has taken our sin upon himself and has borne the curse, has drank the cup of wrath that we deserve, that we might stand before you spotless, clothed with his righteousness. What a glorious message. Um, and give us the eagerness to proclaim it, to see the, the good news of this gospel, and to believe in the power of that message unto salvation. Because it doesn't come through our uh, power, but it's your working power uh, in and through us. We thank you for this um, faith that you've given to us. That's not only um, the start of our relationship for you, but it's the goal as well. Even as Paul says, it's from faith for faith that... Um, uh, we're not put in a position to believe and now we're responsible. We're in position to believe and to spend a lifetime progressing in that belief, um, growing in a, an understanding of our sinfulness and need for you and that we are um, grow in our dependence upon you daily. Help us uh, grow in that faith and dependence and put on the obedience that comes through this faith. Uh, we ask now that um, you bless our time, our fellowship with one another, and even now be working in our hearts to hear your good news proclaimed to us uh, and to experience the power of your word proclaimed. And we ask this in Christ's name by the power of your spirit. Amen.